This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Gita Gopinath grew up in India and studied science during her high school years, but straight away from the typical doctor's and engineer's career path and became an economist. Now Gita is the chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, and in that role, Gita is the director of the IMF's research department and economic counselor of the fund. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Gita recalls how she accidentally began her career in economics and how she sees the global state of the economy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Gita? Hi, Carlos. How are you? Good. How are you? Very good. Where Where are you? Are you in Cambridge or elsewhere? I am in Boston, in Weston, not exactly Cambridge, but yeah, but uh, in, in the Boston area. And your favorite restaurant in the Boston area is someone who once used to live there? Where's your favorite uh Where's your favorite spot uh, when things are healthy? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I, I'm not one of those who goes to restaurants. So it's kind of bad. I don't. But I've been ordering out quite a bit. Um, and let's see. There is an Indian restaurant called Masala Art, nice. uh, which is in Needham, which is actually quite good. And, and, and your spice level is what? Where, where, where are you in terms of the kind of spice you can handle? Very high. Oh, impressive. Okay, impressive, impressive. All right, flaming on, yeah. Okay, okay. My, uh, my mother um, uh, uh, used to work with international students from around the world, and uh, they used to love to challenge her. Students from Thailand, from Mexico, uh, parts of South America, Africa, India would bring her their hottest spices, and they would always lay them out for her, and she would eat them, and then she would say, when are you going to bring the spicy stuff? After they had already, of course, brought their <laughs> their best challenges, so uh, so I come from a flaming hot um, kind of spice person. Although I've never uh, I've never quite had that myself. I, I, by the way, that sounds wonderful. I have a lot of respect for people who host uh, international students because that's what happened to me too when I came to the U.S. Huh. And uh, that family is one of the closest families I have in this country. Uh, when I came to the U.S., this was God Lord, and we. Oof, 25 years ago. So uh, 
Well, yeah. Where, so where, I, I have a huge amount of respect for people who do this. Wait, where did you do that? Were you in high school, college, or graduate school when, when this happened for you? I came for my PhD. I came to Seattle for my PhD. Wow. And then I moved to Princeton, but uh, I was there for a year, for a couple of years. Nice. And, and were you a fish out of water? Were you excited to be in the States? What were you like as a, uh, as a young up-and-coming economist? I, the truth was, I was in, inside, I was pretty terrified, but outside I portrayed, uh, you know, hell of a lot of confidence. <laughs> I, was, I was very, very nervous at that age, you know, being in this country. And nobody, I don't have any other family in this country, you know, from the from who was there before. So it was, uh, I felt quite like a pioneer coming in. <laughs> I, I lo- and and who, did you, who did you find yourself uh, becoming friends with quickly on campus? Were there the other economists? Were there other South Asian students? Were, did, you find your, uh, did you find your tribe, your group, uh, pretty quickly? I think the person, I, yeah, uh, there was this guy from Israel, actually, who, was, who became my friend quite uh, immediately. Yeah. Uh, but, yes, there were a few, a few other Indians, um, and, uh, but yeah, but I was staying with, uh, the host family I was staying with is this family, ladies from Pakistan. Yeah. And, uh, originally she's lived in the U S forever, but, uh, I, you know, that she was incredibly warm and nice and caring. Wow. So I, so I was so happy to hear with your mother doing something similar. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, uh, we grew up in Miami, which as you know, is a very international place and people would come to study from all around the globe. And it was a treat for us as kids, because I felt like I had kind of teachers and friends from uh, from different parts of the world. So you'd meet people from Saudi Arabia and from Israel and from Bolivia and Belgium and all sorts of places. And it was uh, it really was a good treat. So it was uh, it was a good way to grow up. Where uh, Gita, where did you grow up? Where in India? Where in India was home originally? So home is this uh, town called Mysore, which is close to Bangalore. A lot of people have heard of Bangalore. Yeah. Uh, and it's in the South. So that's where my family is. And that's where I grew up, but I did go to Delhi to study. So I was in new Delhi for my bachelor's and master's in economics. And Bangalore has become kind of the Silicon Valley of, uh, of India. Did you spend any time there as an adult? Have you seen that evolution into a kind of a tech center and tech hub? Oh, totally. Oh my God. It's unrecognizable Bangalore over the, over the many years. And for us as young as young kids, coming to Bangalore was like the you know, the village girl going to the city. So we were, we were Bangalore was, was oh my god, the city of lights. That was that was great. Yeah, yeah. You know, whenever I visited India, I've only stayed primarily in the big cities. So I've been to Mumbai and I've been to Delhi and I've been to Bangalore and I've been to Goa, which I know is not the big city, but uh, but a different kind of thing. But I am interested to see the countryside at some point and. Uh, Maybe see a little bit uh, different uh, different angle on that. Um, Gita, how did you get into economics? Are you are you from a family of economists, or or how did that happen? No, there's nobody I know who did economics. And and frankly, growing up in India, you don't exactly as you know the the grand goal is not to become an economist. It's mostly to become a doctor or an engineer. And so I did science all the way through high school. Uh, and then what happened was that we had uh, some friends of my parents who came over and said, well, she'd be great in the Indian administrative service, right? Which is kind of an elite public service in India. And, uh, and so then everybody said, well, that'd be fantastic. Doing economics would be great for that. So then I was sent off to do economics in college. 
So I'm a purely accidental economist. I mean, this is not something that I picked and chose uh, in terms of what I would you know, study. But then uh, this was 1989 to 92. And at that time, India was actually hit by a financial crisis. Uh, and there was a lot going on in terms of discussions on economics and reforms. The International Monetary Fund came in. So I think that's all of that kind of uh, got me pretty excited about this, the subject. And, and then I stuck with it. And, and what do you love about it? What, uh, uh, you know, it's been nice to see as I, as I got prepared for this, seeing all the accolades. It seemed, it seemed like kind of an endless uh, a set of awards. So clearly you've done well with it. But, but what do you love about this? What, uh, what turns you on about economics? I think it's the combination of the fact that the issues you are studying are just in the news, right? I mean, it's exactly what the world is worried about. Recessions, jobs, inequality. The topics are so, you know, it's so clear to people that this, these are important issues. And given my sex, uh, science background, I like that, uh, you know, I'm bringing in some the mathematical rigor that comes with having a science mind uh, is brought to understanding these uh, issues of the day. So it's that combination that I think is fascinating. And it's been particularly fascinating this past year when we've had a crisis like no other, where there was no you know, textbook recipe of how to deal with this kind of a pandemic and the impact that has on economies. So I think it's that combination of the analytical skills that go along with dealing with real world issues that gets me really excited. And, and to be clear, today is the chief economist of the IMF. For those who don't know what you do, what do you do? So, so firstly, the IMF is a, an organization that was set up, uh, you know, as following the wars, the terrible Second World War. And the idea was, let's bring countries together. We certainly can't afford having these kinds of wars. Let's bring economic, co- let's make economic cooperation happen. Let's work towards global prosperity. So we have 190 member countries uh, that are part of the International Monetary Fund. And we do three big things. The one thing that we are very well known for is financing. So we are what they call the lender of last resort, uh, kind of a first responder when you have a country that is having a hard time paying its bills and the markets are not willing to lend to them at any kind of reasonable rates. That's when the IMF comes in and provides uh, financing. And this time around, we've done it for 85 countries in this crisis. Uh, the second piece is, is in terms of providing policy advice about how to deal with the economic problems in your country, uh, helping uh, certain, especially low-income nations, have the right kinds of institutions to have stable economies. So as a chief economist, I'm involved in all these pieces of what the IMF does. And, and so when you talk about the 85 countries, I know there are 190 member countries overall, are those countries primarily in one region or several regions? Who are some of the countries that you're able to help out as a lender of last resort? So these are countries that are all in, these are all emerging markets and developing economies, several low-income countries. So of those 85 countries, I believe 35 are in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but we also have many in Latin America, some in Asia. So these are usually, these are not the advanced economies, clearly, who have plenty of their own financing. But it is the developing countries that we are we are helping here. So, so it might be Guinea, or it might be Ivory Coast, or it might be um, uh, uh, Bolivia, or it might be Peru. Those kinds of countries. Absolutely, exactly, all of those countries. Yes. 
Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. What have you seen over this last uh, pandemic? Are we are, are we in as bad a place? I saw you in earlier conversations say that you thought this was the worst economic moment we've seen since the Great Depression. And yet, in a weird way, and maybe it's because I live in Silicon Valley, so I may not uh, uh, be grappling with the fullness uh, of it. Uh, I see this stock market taking off. I see housing prices rising. Uh, I see unemployment, at least the numbers that they're sharing here in the U.S., under 10%. And so for someone who grew up and saw several recessions along the way, in some ways, this doesn't feel like the worst one. How do you see it? How, how bad economically or how good you know, uh, is the country and the world doing right now? So, Carlos, that's actually a great point because one of the consequences of this crisis is what we're calling the great divergence which is that if you are in the US and, and you know, what you see is a pretty healthy, strong recovery. If you're in China, you see a pretty strong recovery. But if you look at many, many other parts of the world, 
the recovery is much slower, it's taking much longer. And so if you look forward, we are, this is going to be a world where you will have some strong recoveries and many weak recoveries, and that's the divergence that we worry about. In terms of general numbers, if you look at the global economy in 2020, uh, we've estimated that it shrank by three and a half percent. That's over three times what happened during the global financial crisis. It's really the worst peacetime recession in history, right? And so since the Great Depression. So this, it was a very hard hit. But again, if you're in the U.S., what you're seeing is uh, a better recovery than what you're seeing in many emerging and developing countries. And this is exactly what we are trying to address at this point. And, and so say more about that, Gita, because again, I, um, many of us may not be seeing it. W- where do you see that? Where does it show up in real life? Where are you seeing that negative three and a half percent contraction of the economy? Does that mean that there are longer food lines in parts of sub-Saharan Africa? Does that mean that people are being thrown out of work in South America? Does it mean that schools are being shut down for half the year in parts of Asia? Where is it showing up in people's lives? So indeed, I mean, even for the U.S., you did have uh, about, I think, a negative 3% growth rate last year. So you did have a 3% contraction in 2020, which is a significant amount. Now, again, even within the U.S., there's a big difference between if you're working in Silicon Valley and you can do your work remotely just fine and everything looks good, as opposed to if you are young or you're low-skilled or you work in restaurants and work in the hospitality sector, you're getting hit very hard. So the divergence is there even in the U.S. But if you look around the globe, uh, and this is important to keep in mind, because if you look at just numbers in terms of how low-income countries in sub-Saharan Africa, you you can take many countries, even if you look at the emerging markets like South Africa or Namibia, Nigeria, all of these countries, they are getting a serious hit to their incomes. Now, if you're a poor country and you have a 5% hit to your income, that means you have millions entering extreme poverty, being malnourished, right? Unlike a 5% drop in income for the US, which is a completely different story. So the concern here indeed is the projection is for around 90 million people to enter extreme poverty this year. That's what we should, we would see. If you're seeing the hit to education, indeed, I mean, you know, while remote learning is possible in countries like the US, it just doesn't work in many other parts of the world. So the loss in terms of education uh, has been tremendous and that's an area that needs to be fixed. So we're seeing high levels of unemployment around the world and poverty, which, again, is something that is not going away tomorrow. We really have to work on it. So so what are some of the policies or moves that you think will make a difference in these parts of the world? What what, what do you think could prevent 90 million people from staying in deep poverty and, and, and indeed maybe, you know, do the opposite, actually figure out how to turn a difficult moment into a moment of growth and opportunity? So Carlos, a couple of things. For one, we need to end this pandemic and that's not gonna happen until we end it everywhere, right? Because we know there are new virus variants coming up in different parts of the world. So if we don't end the pandemic everywhere, it doesn't end anywhere. And so that's the number one issue, which is if you look at vaccinations and the vaccination rollout of vaccinations, it's absolutely skewed towards advanced economies and some emerging and developing economies. But a whole lot of low-income countries are not expected to get a vaccine shot even until 2022 to get sufficient coverage. 
So that's, uh, I think, a major, major issue that needs to be addressed, which is to get greater production, greater vaccine rollout. Now, again, this is an example, advanced economies that have about 16% of the world's population have bought up over 50% of vaccine doses. So there is a huge amount of vaccine hoarding that's also happening because people want to uh, vaccinate their own population. But there is, you know, there are parts of the world where there's serious deficits and this surplus has to be moved around over time. So that's one big area. The second big area is that while advanced economies could you know, provide fiscal measures that were about 24% of their GDP, right? 24% of their income, they basically provided in fiscal support. Low-income countries were only able to do 2%, right? So you're seeing, the reason you're seeing these diverging recoveries is because they weren't able to send the kinds of checks that the advanced economies were able to do. They weren't able to do, provide grants to firms. So we're seeing weaker recoveries come from that. So that problem has to be solved by the international community providing concessional financing, providing grants to them, uh, in many cases debt relief because they already are overburdened with large amounts of debt, restructuring their debt. All of these policies will be needed so that they freeze up the resources they need to help their people. Let me go back to what you were talking about on the vaccine front. You know, in the past on some of these various drugs Countries like Brazil and India and others have said, screw it. I'm not going to wait for the big multinational pharma companies to create uh, drugs at a price that makes sense for me. I'm essentially going to create generic versions on my own. Do you think we're going to see that on the vaccine front? And given the hoarding that you're concerned about, do you think that's something that the IMF and others will encourage? So, I mean, that's a very important point of how do we increase production. So there's one channel that is working is through licensing agreements. So an example of that is AstraZeneca, the Oxford vaccine. They have licensing arrangements with manufacturers around the world, including India, that are manufacturing their vaccine uh, in India, for instance. And that is one way to make it happen. The second is, do we do we basically say, let's take patents, like, let's not worry about IPOs, intellectual property rights, and let everybody just manufacture the vaccines, right? Now, the concern is that if you look at vaccines, for instance, like uh, the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine, the so-called mRNA vaccine, the technical skills that are required to make, to produce those vaccines are not that simple. So it's not, very, it's not like reverse engineering a drug, which can happen much more easily. It's not that easy to reverse engineer a vaccine. So you actually need collaboration uh, across you know, uh, manufacturing uh, pharma, pharma companies in developed and developing countries to be able to get the right amount of production uh, done. So I think all of these measures uh, uh, will be needed. In interesting. So would you argue that given that not only do we have sadly this pandemic, but you've got folks like Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci saying that we probably should get used to the idea that there will be more pandemics and more waves over the next decade or two. Do you think that in the same way that we had international organizations that have dealt with trade, have dealt with lending like yours, should there be international organizations that are distributing vaccines both now and in the future? Because that's going to be core to the, you know, uh, not only the health, but the healthy civilization of the, uh, of the world. I do think this pandemic has taught us that we need a much more robust mechanism at the international level to deal with a, a pandemic. So there is the World Health Organization. Uh, you do have other kinds of, you know, there are vaccine alliances. You have 
the COVAX facility, which uh, it comes from uh, the WHO. So all of these have been set up, but there is indeed, this hasn't worked as well as it should have. We're certainly seeing not enough production coming through. We are seeing some countries with very large amounts of supplies, others without it. Uh, and given that uh, this is not going to be a one-off episode, we certainly know that there's going to be more variants of this virus and other kinds of viruses that come up. I think there has to be a, a much more robust structure set in place to deal with all the issues here when it comes to vaccinations. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.
Gita, I want to pick your brain about, there's so many things, I wish we had eight hours. I want to pick your brain, if I can, about a handful of individual topics. And do you mind if I jump from topic to topic quickly a little bit? Absolutely. Um, where are you seeing the most innovative economic leadership in the world? Like, if you were going to pick two or three uh, leaders in the world who you think are implementing interesting policies or doing interesting things that the rest of us could learn from, where would you point us towards? I don't know if these are individuals, um, Carlos, but I believe there are many institutions that are innovating. And I'm going to, you know, use my prerogative and talk about the International Monetary Fund <laughs> as one of those institutions okay. uh, that is innovating. No, I mean, I mean, in, in all seriousness, if you if you went back, uh, you know, a, f- a few decades, not so far back, the concern was that the International Monetary Fund was an institution that gave advice that basically was appropriate for the US, but not for the rest of the world, that our financing did not take into account uh, concerns about, uh, you know, extreme poverty in countries, you know, by just saying countries should uh, should spend less, that, that can create huge problems, vulnerable populations. Since, and over the last decades, there's been a sea change in the kinds of uh, interactions that IMF has had, uh, you know, we are, in this particular crisis, we gave close to 80 countries emergency financing without any conditionalities, which is basically saying you need the money, you need it fast, you need to spend it on health, you need it to help your poor, and we're going to move very quickly. So that was a big change. Another major issue which is addressing a long-standing problem is climate. And again, this is another area where at the IMF we've stepped up in a big way in trying to address uh, issues on the climate front and climate change. So again, I believe that this is another big area. And in fact, I should tell you that some of these topics, like including climate, get less attention in a classroom than they do get in, uh, in the real world. So if you look at what's taught in graduate schools in economics, climate would be actually a much smaller fraction of, of any curriculum compared to how important it is in the world right now. So my hope is that some of that will change over time. And, uh, you know, economics will become a little more forward-leaning on these issues. You know, I want to come back to this question of, 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 of interesting leaders in the field of economics around the world, because I still remember uh, Lula. I don't, do you remember Lula da Silva, who at one point uh, had run for president of Brazil several times, ultimately um, uh, was elected, served for several terms. And I remember there was a lot of concern initially about his leadership, and you heard it a lot on the part of the markets and others. But ultimately, Brazil, it felt like, ascended and became a much stronger uh, country economically. Clearly, they had some political issues as well. Uh, But at least economically, they seemed to do better than people expected. Are there other folks like Lula or um, uh, the former prime minister of Singapore, who obviously got a lot of credit for the modernization of Singapore going back to the 60s and 70s. Are there other folks around the globe right now, Ida, that that we should know about, that we should keep an eye on, or other countries that are just doing really interesting things that that you want me to know about if I care about about, uh, forward-looking economics? Right. Um, I always find it a bit dangerous to talk about people because Sometimes they do very good things and then they end up doing something really stupid. So <laughs> just to be, just to, I'd rather talk about issues that I think are, uh, are important. And, you know, the example you gave, including of Lula, is an example of the fact that countries need to invest in providing a safety net for people. It's not 
it cannot be inequality is an issue not just for the individuals who are poor, but it is an issue for the for the globe or the world as a whole. Uh, and so again, I think a lesson coming out of this particular uh, crisis is that you need to have in place a strong social safety net. The countries that had it were able to put money very quickly in the hands of the people and they're able to see faster recoveries. Secondly, I would say uh, is digital infrastructure. The countries that had strong digital infrastructures have been able to deal with this crisis better than others have. So uh, so these are kind of the, um, the important who, who, issues. Who's on that list, Gita? Who did have strong digital infrastructure? Besides the U.S.? Yes. So I would say among, for instance, if you look at developing countries, I would say, you know, while there's still scope for more to be done, but, you know, countries like Kenya, countries like India uh, are examples where you had a strong digital infrastructure that and a system of digital payments in terms of getting money very quickly into the hands of people that helped uh, deal with, uh, with this crisis better. Um, Gita, I know your PhD advisor was Ben Bernanke, who uh, famously uh, became chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, what did you learn most from him? I mean, what an extraordinary opportunity to get to work on your dissertation with clearly one of the giants of the economics field who also became a practitioner and so who bridged that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, university and, and real world divide. What were some of the most interesting things that you learned from him? So I guess one thing you learned from Ben is how to be uh, poker faced. <laughs> this is, this is, you know, it's something I, I when I'm when I'm doing some of my interviews, it's good to remember that uh, you don't want to give away too much. And and Ben is one of those incredibly poker faced uh, advisors. Even as an advisor, it was hard sometimes to, to figure out what exactly we was thinking. But on the other hand, I think what what was remarkable about Ben was the combination of, you know, sound mathematical skills, theory, and so on, but also following very closely the data, you know, telling us what the facts, where the, going where the facts lead us. Uh, and so he had this very good mix of kind of empirical knowledge that went along with theoretical knowledge. And I think that that served him incredibly well. I mean, his work on uh, the Great Depression, I think was very important for how he re- reacted to the global financial crisis. Uh, and so again, so I think it's that combination that I find uh, incredibly valuable, and that has helped me too. And Gita, what kind of advice do you give? I'm sure, particularly as someone who has taught at Chicago and Harvard and other places, you have lots of folks coming up to you for advice all the time. When you talk to people about dreaming fearlessly, what's some of the best advice you've either received yourself or that you've given to people when they ask you about how to not only dream fearlessly, but bring those dreams alive? Well, I think the number one uh, Number one uh, factor has to be inner strength, frankly speaking. I, I suspect you might agree too. I mean, in, in some sense, you have to really believe in yourself. Uh, and, you know, as a woman in the field of economics, and especially in macroeconomics, where it's mostly male dominated, you might not get that much of, you know, reinforcement from everybody else. You really have to believe in what you're capable of doing and in pushing your ideas uh, forward. So I think that's. Number one. Second, of course, is nothing comes without hard work. And I don't mean hard work in some sort of a painful way, but hard work in a really kind of joyous, enjoying yourself kind of way. And to find good collaborators to work with, good friends to hang out with, have a great family, it really helps. I'm very blessed to have a great uh, husband and a wonderful son. Uh, And all of these, uh, 
you know, play a very important role. Um, Gide, if you don't mind, I'd love to wrap up with what I call rapid fire and ask you three or four questions about some of your favorite things. Sure. What's your favorite book? Oh, I actually have many, but the one that's left a big imprint on me is a book by uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. Um, you know, I, 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 for me, it struck, it, it, you know, it struck me in a very deep way. And I found it incredibly poetic the way it was written. So uh, that book, often whenever I think of books that I re- really had left a big impression, I would say that's one of those. Oh, I love you saying that. You know, he's been one of the most popular guests we've had on the show. And and we talked a lot uh, about that book and about his son. And um, I could see you writing a book uh, for your little fella uh, one day. Something tells me that, uh, that that's coming in, uh, in one form or another. It would be kind of a nice thing. Um, uh, your favorite movie. What's your favorite movie or, or TV series? Oh, there's a lot of good television these days. <laughs> the movie, I think I would say, I would say Gandhi. The uh, the movie that was made by uh, you know uh, it's it's an old movie. Yeah. Uh, you should watch it. It's got Ben Kingsley as the uh, actor. If you haven't seen it, yes. uh, but it is on Mahatma Gandhi, and it's I think it's a classic. It's yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, um, uh, your karaoke song. Oh, good lord! Oh no, I can't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, well, I guess I guess. I, 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 I would not sing it, but uh, there is this uh, song called, it's called Jai Ho, which is in Hindi. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, by A.R. Rahman. Uh, I don't know if you saw this movie, Slumdog Millionaire. Sure. It's the song that's, it's the soundtrack. There's a song that plays it. It's called Jai Ho. It means let victory be yours. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great song. If you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would you have dinner with? I would have with Mahatma Gandhi. Absolutely, hands down. And would you have it with Mahatma Gandhi in South Africa, Mahatma Gandhi in India, Mahatma Gandhi? Where, which, which version of him, as you know, he evolved a lot over the years. Where would, where would you have met with him? I, I mean, I, I'd say Mahatma Gandhi anywhere, but certainly, I guess, you know, maybe towards the end of his life when he had this whole body of knowledge and this whole wisdom of experience, that would have been fantastic to have a conversation with him. And finally, Gita, where do you think we will see you 10 years from now? You've had such a beautiful run early on already. Where do you think we will see you 10 years from now, professionally, personally, otherwise? Well, I haven't been very good about charting where I get to. So I don't, frankly, I don't even know where I will be. I know what I will continue to do is, uh, you know, steep myself in economics, make sure that I have my eye on the big issues of the day and hopefully continue to contribute uh, to society any which way I can. Um, uh, Gita, thank you so very much uh, for joining me today. It feels like the time went by too quickly. I think it would be fun to have you and ta Coates on together. I think that'd be quite an interesting uh, combination. You're making me think that that needs to be a future version of our shows where we bring on interesting people who... Uh, who enjoy each other. I think that would, have you met him before? Do you, do you know him at all? No, I haven't. I would, I would love to meet him. Yeah. I think that would be, uh, uh, let me see if I can work on that. I think that would be quite a nice uh, combination to have the two of you in conversation. That'd be quite a nice thing. Um, uh, thank you for making the time. I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you, Carlos. Thanks for having me on your show.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.